0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.
1: Our first show back for the year—not radio therapies, of course—we started last week. But uh, as regulars will know, we have a rotating list of panels and panelists. I'm Dr. Doolittle. We've got a packed show this morning. Joining me, though, in the virtual studio is Doctor's Spock trainer wheels and panel beater and we've got lots to cover today trainer wheels is going to tell us about her first days as a doctor you might remember from years well i keep forgetting how long trainer wheels has been on but it's a number of years and she was always our medical student extraordinaire and now she's our intern extraordinaire she's going to tell us about that and spock's been uh part of a number of committees looking at um, the impact of COVID on kids. And he's going to give us a bit of a report in particular, some local uh, uh, impacts and of course, some global impacts, in particular, the global impacts on girls. So it's, it's going to be an interesting segment. And we've also got a special guest that I'm really excited about, Professor Jerome Saris. He's an expert in complementary and integrative medicine. In fact, some of you will remember we had him back on the show in oh, it's about 2015, 16, and he talked about nutrition and its impact on depression. But this time he's talking to us about the role of psychedelics like magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, have I pronounced that right people, psilocybin and, and those sorts of drugs as emerging treatments for mental illness. Anyway, let's say day to everyone. Panel B, I can't see you but I'm hoping I can hear you. Are you there? I can see you and hear you. Looking good. In that case, I did a little dance for you. Um, <laughs> how are you, man? You good? I'm well, I'm well. It's good to be back, isn't it? Oh, It's so nice. It's so nice. It was, and it's just such a pleasure driving into the studios. I was thinking this morning, you know, God, we're lucky to do this. And, you know, it's always a joy on the Sunday mornings getting up um, for, for triple R as distinct from getting up for other reasons, you know, like with a hangover. Hey, uh, um, Trainer Wheels, how are you?
2: I'm good, Doolittle. How are you?
1: Where are you right now? Because it looks like a weird background. It's not your yeah. usual background.
2: I'm in my childhood bedroom at my mum's house. We're here because she's babysitting my daughter and the window's rattling in the wind, so I'm just holding that so it's not banging around for the listeners and I'm enjoying the various things I collected over my adolescence in here.
1: (laughs) So so in in other words, we have got a window into your childhood life. Why are there hula hoops in the background?
2: I used to do circus at Circus <laughs> Oz. Shout out to Circus Oz. Um, I did classes there as a kid, and I loved it. I can't wait till my daughter's old enough to go there. Can't put a can finger over. on it, but that
1: doesn't surprise me, Trainer
2: Wheels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a clown. And
1: and Spock, where the heck are you? Because hey, um, I know you're not at home on account of the fact that uh, let's face it, for listeners. We live together. I live with I live with Doctor Spock and his wife. Um, we share share a house. In effect, that's a, a false way of putting it. I freeload at their house when I'm staying in Melbourne, um, and you are, are not at home, Spocky. It.
3: Where are you? I'm not. I'm not at home. I'm in Lawn. Uh, my wife, who you mentioned, she um, is a, a magnificent surf lifesaver in the Masters Surf life Saving Competition that is held every year here in Lawn. and uh, she competed yesterday. Um, competed in most events and has a swag of medals, as she usually does.
1: I I saw it on um, Instagram. It looked like she had about six. It looked like half were gold and half were silver. Was that right? I tried Uh, to blow it up to
3: see. Six is exactly correct. Well, I took a photo just of the medals, which I sent to the kids. But uh, uh, half uh, six, and I think think it's actually four gold and two silver, as a matter of fact. And she's actually lame. She's got a torn calf, and I reckon she would have... It would have been virtually all gold if she hadn't been the last into the water as she sort of hobbled in with her board or hobbled into the swim. So, yeah, she she did very well. Hats so, yeah, off to the here Lawn. Hats off to the surf lifesavers. Hats off. Yeah. And the circus. Oh, I do. I do want to ask, the Trainer Wheels. Just talking about being in rooms and background stuff. There's something on the shelf there. I notice it's a bit like that. You know, there's during the week on. There was a woman in Wales who was on the, uh, you know, that went viral, didn't it? There was uh, something in the background of she was being interviewed. I was just wondering what that's on your shelf. Is that? The... Look,
2: it's nothing. Just ignore it. It's nothing.
3: Yeah. Okay. I don't know
1: I, I, did, I don't know if the audience knows what you're referring to, but there was a, a yeah. story went viral about a woman on BBC who had some sort of sex toy on her bookshelf in the back. I don't know if it was a sex toy. I don't really know. I had to look at it. looked relatively, I didn't even know what it was, but uh, yeah, look it up oh, if yeah. you don't get a chance. It, it went, <laughs> if you get a chance, it went all over the world. Um, why don't we jump straight into some action? And we're going to begin with you, Spock. Look at me deciding on the spot. Um Oh, I can just see panel uh camera's been turned on. G'day, panel beater. Spock, why don't you yeah. launch into what you were thinking of, um, you know, what's been uh, capturing your attention?
3: Well, look, I did want to, I mean, whilst on the one hand, it's sort of uh, probably good to start thinking beyond COVID, but um, I think uh, towards the end of last year, we, we uh, really started realising uh, some of the unintended uh, consequences um, of COVID on Uh, when I say unintended, unexpected consequences of COVID on children in particular. Uh, As you said, I was involved in a Safer Care Victoria group, expert working group, looking at some of those um, unexpected consequences. And a lot of people now have been publishing on what's called the collateral damage. And I guess locally, for starters, um, what we saw was because of school closures, childcare closures, kinder closures, and so on, um, we saw a, a lot of Consequences for kids on their educational um, ability to access education, of course. We uh, saw kids, particularly those with disability, kids with autism, son, who their, their schooling was really affected because they weren't really able to access the online learning very well. Of course, there was an the impact on the, all the parents, the poor parents, having to sort of try and help their kids through that stuff. But then there were a number of other things like uh, the allied health and maternal child health. Uh, workers, all of them were closed, had closed down and were doing all their stuff either online or not at all. And um, well, there was a huge number, a huge excess of babies with uh, feeding problems, parents who needed sort of psychological support. Um, we had about three times as many babies um, admitted to hospital at the children's than we normally do with feeding problems and who were underweight, for example. So, you know, some things that really were concerning and weren't really necessary, maternal child health nurses could have continued to do some work. So at the end of last year, we actually put together a paper, which we gave to the health department to try and recommend what ought to be done if there was another wave. And one of those things was to maintain maternal and child health nurse services, maintain, maintain allied health. There's the other kids with disability, kids with autism who have speech therapy and OT and psychology. Uh, they couldn't really manage to do that online very effectively. And so they just missed out. So, so the, you know, a lot of these things were a big concern.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We just talked at um, my hospital uh, about um, the impact on allied health. We've, you know, there's been a lot of stuff written about the impact on the medicine side of things, but allied health in particular, you know, a lot of support comes from allied health and doing a lot of that by phone and the computer, we're starting to wonder what, the, what was lost. And so we're just starting to begin doing some, um, you know, surveys of people who have experienced it to get the feedback from the people about what's good and what's bad about, uh, you know, our... our a massive shift to telehealth sort of overnight and what about on a global scale
3: well sort of on a global scale you know that there's been a real concern because um in a number of developing countries um kids uh you know make up a huge number you know of the sort of slave workforce um they they uh, miss out on education and so on and that, that's been a concern for a number of years you know the, there's these things as sustainable development goals the United Nations put together these 17 goals um, in 2015, and they wanted to try to have a big impact on those goals by 2030. And some of those were like no, really big sweeping things. Of course, no poverty, um, quality education, gender equality, climate action, a whole range of things. But with all the attention on COVID this year, in a number of developing countries, all the attention has been taken away from the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and in particular, like in the places like India, for example, they just went into a snap lockdown with virtually no, no warning, and um, immediately sort of all the the poorly paid workers were out of out of work, and as a result of that, and all the kids were, and they closed down all the schools throughout most of India, so kids had no education, and many ki- parents had no work, and one of the things unfortunate happens in a lot of these places is that parents sell their kids for early marriages um, uh, to be able to make ends meet. And so there's a big consideration, Save the Children have produced this um, big report called the Global Girlhood Report that was published just at the end of 2020. And there's been a thing in the Lancet just recently um, about it all. And um, it just highlights the fact that there are a number of young girls under the age of 18 who probably will never re-enter education who, um, as a result of that, they won't learn about sex education. They'll get married early and, and they're just you know, doomed to a to a terrible life as a result.
1: Any questions from the panel? I'm aware that uh, I know this is a hot issue in particular for you, um, panel beta
0: yeah, there's a couple of things on my mind. When I was trying to prepare um, for this, uh, Spock, I was just look, trying to find some literature on on what sort of research is being done, You know, what advantage of, of the circumstance being done, and it seems pretty thin on the ground. What's your reading of the current state of play uh, on that front?
3: Yeah, well, the, I mean, the, the, you're right. It is pretty thin on the ground, unfortunately. Again, these are marginalised groups in, in whom... it's it's difficult to do research in the first place, and and, uh, there's sort of not necessarily the will to to do a lot of research. Um, But there's certainly WHO and UNICEF and Save the Children are all sponsoring some research. Um, The Wellcome Trust, Jeremy Farrar, uh, the Wellcome Trust uh, has just, they've um, garnered a whole lot of funding to do uh, research, in particular India and some other, and Vietnam, a couple of places where there's real concern about childhood marriage. Um, on the impact on children and in particular on, on trying to not just to do research on it, but try to actually put money into sort of um, maintaining the efforts, the Sustainable Development Goal efforts. Um, so there's also things like the, the immunisation programs in a number of these countries that have just stopped. Me- measles had made a res- big resurgence over the last few years and, and that's, there's a resurgence, increased resurgence last year because the meas, I mean, for good reasons, they have these mass immunisation programs. But that means that everyone has to come together and uh, there won't be any physical isolation. So they sort of cancelled the uh, immunisation programs and a whole lot more measles. So there's all of these sort of uh, this collateral damage, as we, as we say.
1: Hey, um- yeah it sounds like there's an area where there's so much more work to go. you know are there any priorities locally that we need to be doing i mean you know having just mentioned the global um approach, what are the local priorities where do we what's the next step
3: Well i think some of the i mean so as i said, i think uh, you know we've we've uh, written a, a sort of a paper that and it's been presented to the public health unit at DHS uh, around the fact that we shouldn't close schools, child cares and kinders, you know, if there's another wave, um, because we need to maintain education, we man- mm-hmm. need to maintain parents in the workforce, as a whole, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think a big, uh, a, and, and uh, as you'll know, I mean, there's a, a lot of effort needs to go into mental health um, as well, because this was one of the other big things. We had um, there's almost a, a 40% or fifty, up to 50% increase in presentations to the emergency department at our hospital with self-harm and suicidal ideation. And worryingly, there was a 50% increase in the number of kids admitted to our ICU at the Children's Hospital with severe intentional self-harm um, during this last uh, six-month period. So you know, it's hard to know how to attribute that. But the fact of the matter is that it's something that needs a a big focus. So there's already a focus on mental health, of course, um, and the commission and so on. And we're waiting that report, aren't we? but
1: that's a big focus, I think. Just on just that's a little bit of local news this week. Just when I want to say local Victorian news, the mental health royal commission final report. There was an interim report in November last year, about seven hundred pages. The final report was due out Thursday this week for keen uh, watchers of reports. But uh, as you probably know, Dan Andrews, that was the day that the first that the community, that the case uh, occurred with all the hotspots and he didn't want the um, report to be overshadowed by the COVID news. So they delayed it. They said they'll uh, delay it till there's a bit of uh, airspace probably a week, maybe more. So we'll hear that soon. And while you were talking, by the way, I just looked up today's cases. Good news, another zero. So this is our third day of zero cases in Victoria, um, which is just fantastic news. I think we're all uh, sweating on this because, of course, the case that the um, the unfortunate person co- um, contracted the... Uh, quarantine worker, you know had gone to many spots and so everyone's sort of waiting with bated breath to see if there's any local spread so three days in a row is a great start but obviously we have to remain super vigilant for the first week or so to uh and keep our fingers crossed for uh no outbreaks um I reckon, because it is 17 minutes past 10, and you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with myself, Doolittle. You've just been hearing Dr Spocker, our paediatrician expert, talking about the uh, local and global impacts of COVID on kids. Um, and uh, we've got panel in the studio, who you just heard, and of course, Trainer Wheels, who later is going to tell us about... Her beginnings as an intern year. But coming up after the break, we've got uh, Professor Jerome Sarris talking to us about complementary and integrative medicine, in particular the role of psychedelics as uh, emerging treatments.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform
1: time for our special guest to join us. We have Professor Jerome Sarris. Now let me tell you some of these titles, but you know, get your pens out, people. Get your pens out and take notes. NHMRC Clinical Research Fellow and Professor of Integrative Mental Health at Western Sydney Uni. Also an Honorary Head of Arcadia, which I'm sure he'll tell us about, a specialised nutraceutical and lifestyle medicine research group in Melbourne, and an Honorary Principal Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne. Jerome, Gidday, can you hear us? Yes, great to be with you, Steve. Begin by telling us, those titles are so numerous. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
4: Basically, I'm an academic. I've always had a passion and an interest in researching really all manners of curiosity relating to mental health and in particular, psychoactive plant medicines, which I guess is what we're going to focus on today, including certainly a growing and evolving interest in psychedelics.
1: So tell us, you know, I mean, this is like a very intro question. Why do we need new treatments in mental health? I know the answer is so obvious, but I can't resist asking it because the first article I read about you when I was preparing for this talked about it. So let's bring everyone else in on the secret. Why do we need new treatments for mental health?
4: Well, I mean, certainly I can kick us off by saying, unfortunately, there's been a lessening of, of, of a pharmaceutical company, of drug company interest in terms of you know, growing our treatments. And we unfortunately, while we've had some good advances with, say, antipsychotics and antidepressants over previous decades, really hasn't been a lot recently. And the companies, unfortunately, are shifting their resources towards other areas, you know, potentially more profitable and sadly, potentially more effective. So, you know, as alluded to before, we have increased uh, you know issues with mental health and society, and unfortunately our present treatments. Uh, don't seem to be making a dent, so we yeah we need to look at other options.
1: You know, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast yesterday where they're talking about uh, um, Siggy Freud, Sigmund Freud. You might have heard of him, old mate of us all. Um, and, and of course, it struck me Siggy was one of the first people doing all of this. He was um, experimenting with cocaine at the time, specifically for mental illness, and then it didn't w- it didn't work out well. And so he went on to um, they went on to using it as an anesthetic, and hence and, you know history is made. So you're into psychedelics in particular. Be- begin the ball. But Tell us what psychedelics are and the key chemicals.
4: Sure. Well, I mean, th- there's a range of them. I guess the, the primary class would be considered classic psychedelics. Uh, these may involve LSD, which I'm sure uh, most people would be aware of, uh, also uh, psilocybin from our magic mushrooms, uh, as well as ayahuasca. Uh, and this is a two-plant combination, uh, a psychoactive brew, uh, which is uh, you know, used throughout uh, parts of South America. And they all elicit uh, effects such as hallucination, uh, transcendental experience, you know, mystical effects, people may get um, you know, auditory uh, hallucinations as well. And, and, and people, or many people are taking these will find it really quite an intense, uh, transformative experience
1: what what are the i mean i get you know i think we all know the sort of the psycho the, you know hallucinogenic sort of stuff what are the mm-hmm. proposed benefits what, what what sort of areas do people look at and and why
4: yeah absolutely um i mean certainly from our perspective it's it's important to take this within a uh, you know a, a psychological framework a medical framework we're not certainly proposing people go out and you know start uh, taking these substances willy-nilly because we do know that in a percentage of people uh, that they can have negative effects, especially if there's personal familial background, say with um, schizophrenia, psychosis, uh, you know, there can be, be issues, but also people may have amazing experiences, but they actually may find it challenging to integrate uh, those, those transformational experiences into their daily lives. So that's why we want to have that psychological framework around it.
3: Spock, you've got a question? Yeah, Jerome. Is, so, is there a notion that these would be used as a sort of a, an ongoing management strategy for for patients with mental health problems?
4: Yeah, that's a, a very good question. Uh, depending on how it's approached, uh, I mean, really, what is quite fascinating, and uh, looking at the data, is this really showing quite a powerful effect? So, people may have one or two uh, therapeutic sessions of, say, psilocybin. Uh, or LSD within a, a psychotherapy-supported framework, and that actually may give remission from their mood disorder uh, or, or in some cases from, uh, you know, alcoholism or, or excess drug taking, you know, put them into remission months and months and months later. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an ongoing uh, effect. The idea would be to do it within, say, a, you know, a four- to 12-week framework, depending on the, um, the study design. And then hopefully, yeah, people will get longer-lasting benefits.
1: I think we've got trainer wheels and then panel beta.
2: Ryan, this is super interesting. Thanks for joining us. You mentioned their mood disorders and substance use disorders as kind of areas that you're targeting with the psychedelics. Do you? Can you tell us a bit more about what sort of conditions might be treatable with them? And do you have some kind of theory as to how they work or why they might work? Uh,
4: Yes, absolutely. And I think really that if anything, uh, modern society and especially COVID has taught us that, you know, when you do get the constellation of depression, poor mood uh, from a variety of reasons, people will tend or certainly a percentage of people to increase substance misuse as well as alcohol use. So I think that's a novel area, certainly an area which uh, myself and Dr. Daniel Perkins uh, at uh, Melbourne Uni Uh, uh, are very much interested in is is what's known as dual diagnosis so potentially treating people with that common uh, combination of depression as well as say alcohol or substance misuse Um, because we've got really quite startling data showing that that the use of these particular agents uh, in particular ayahuasca uh, may really uh, you know improve people's mood but also reduce uh, their use of these substances so Um, we're still finding out how and why these these work Um, they do have a a number of neurobiological effects on uh, primarily the serotonin uh, system which you know listeners may be aware of it's sort of the feel-good hormone um, uh, so hormones or a neurochemical uh, and uh, you know very important uh, to to obviously have good serotonergic activity and um, to uh, mitigate depression as well as um, substance and alcohol issues so that's one of the key functions it also may have an inflammatory effect has also been shown to improve neurogenesis so you know really you know regrowing the brain in, in very late terms um, you know and also you know s- sparking a range of, uh, of synaptic connections I mean when you look at the brain imaging work with psychedelics you know it's lit up like a Christmas tree it's really quite 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 remarkable reminds me i don't know if people remember that film called La- lawnmower man you know, no like i
1: don't
4: spielberg was it spielberg or no no it was stephen king it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a, a horror movie where anyway so the you know it's almost sort of supercharging the 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 brain so to speak so the idea is that in combination with psychological therapy hopefully you know we we, we can get increased benefits but um i think beyond that uh, especially when you look at trauma and you look at the underlying reasons why people uh, may have depression or may have uh, substance misuse or, you know, as I said, mood or anxiety disorders, that, you know, having these profound experiences, the, these, um, you know, exceptional experiences, and some of them can be quite frightening. We're not going to, you know, we're not saying it's just a walk in the park. You know, there's always a you know potential bad trip phenomenon. However if done in a psychological psychological framework uh, people can have incredible insights in terms of what's underpinning their mental disorder and really uh, you know report profound psychological changes and that in combination with the neurochemical alterations uh, really can have profound effects on on mental health
0: panel beta yeah thanks um Dolittle. um yeah my mind's racing uh, and and i'm i'm remembering back to when i was doing some research into the benefits of um these things back in my 20s um the <laughs> um no, more seriously but, though you, you yeah. mentioned um you mentioned the magic s word a moment ago serotonin and a lot of our listeners will um probably be most familiar with that uh might be uh making use of ssris for example maybe sertraline and that that sort of thing and they'll be taking that in combination with um one of the talk theories, CBT, or something like that, with um, therapy around um, uh, uh, you know, psychedelics I'll um, use the you know the macro term um, th- th- there's also parallel therapy as well. There, you know a patient would also be still doing maybe a talk theory on site. But can you just clarify for me, is the distinction between the episode, the therapeutic moment where you're going through a, um, a psychedelic session, um, actually trying to do, like it's an act of therapy itself in a way that just uh, using an SSRI is just really um, part of a coping Device um, while somebody is going through some other kind of therapeutic treatment. I've heard people talk about uh, psychedelics, and you may have been alluding alluding to it a moment ago with insights. There's this idea that it's tapping consciousness in a way that we don't otherwise tap consciousness.
4: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, and and it's important to understand because this is something which uh, which does get brought up that people say. Hang on, you want to do all this talk therapy? You're giving people mushrooms, or, or in some cases, um, you know, if you say PTSD, they use enactogens, um, or I should say entactogens or empathic, uh, empathogens. Uh, MDMA is is another one, uh, which is used, slightly different class. Uh, but people say, oh, you're going to just talk therapy. They're, you know, getting into my head. I'm... Well, not actually true when it comes to the the actual experience. So the talk therapy, so to speak, is beforehand in a preparatory sense. But when people are undergoing this therapy, and I think Steve's going to talk later on about set and setting, um it, Uh, The the talk-based work, the psychological work, is generally done before and after, so in the coming days and weeks after to have that uh, integration. So the actual experience itself is very introspective, so it's it's largely self-directed, and that is exactly right, that it is, in a sense, uh, facilitating uh, people to get to, you know, for apologies for using a lay term but a, a deeper sense of consciousness hmm. so so re, re, really going into into areas especially in some cases into memories you know childhood memories traumatic memories depending on what they're treating um, which cannot be really accessed in that way via an SSRI
1: why don't you tell us about setting setting while you're while you're on the on a roll
4: <laughs> yes well, I don't want to roll too much you know because we've got a great panel um, but uh, so yeah please chime in at any time yeah in terms of set and setting, so this this is why we we really advocate for this to be used within a, a you know a good psychological framework with you know ideally you know, good medical oversight um, is because uh, you know rather than people taking it willy nilly at raids or parties or so forth, um, as we know the the effect of the environment has a massive impact on the, the psychedelic experience. So you can imagine in terms of the mindset. So that's the set part. Uh, people are going into this with the aim that they want to get better mentally. You know, they, they're using this as a therapeutic tool. So that's very important. So the mindset and the approach with the psychological uh, therapy is very important. The setting, the set part uh, is also important. And people laugh, you know, we do radio interviews of this to say, oh, so is everybody kicking back on beanbags and, you know, sort of, you know listening to you know, the Beatles and so forth. Well, strangely enough, yes. Uh, so depending on what the person likes. Uh, they'll generally be set up on a comfortable couch you'll have one or two therapists there uh, guiding them through it they'll have a blindfold on a music playlist which they'll like I've uh, even of you know candles and incense and nice uh, greenery as well there seems to be a good of, uh, impact for nature so really that calming environment uh, is a supporting environment is very important
1: yeah it does sound fantastic tell us um before we – because I want to get on something else, but I want to hear the risks as well because I know a lot of people out there will be thinking, you know, it sounds fantastic. What are the risks? What are the things you worry about, side effects, whatever you like?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, that, and that's the critical point, and that's why we do need more research. So we're not sort of saying, yep, let's get out there and all we'll will start taking it. Um, just like with medicinal cannabis, there has been a bit of cart before horse that was sort of catching up in terms of the, the safety elements Around it, we need, of course, here yeah, more more research. As I said, um, so one thing which obviously we need to look at is people with a risk of schizophrenia, uh, you know, psychosis. Uh, that, that that really we want to screen and make sure that uh, you know that people uh, aren't taking it with that risk. So the sense is it's not so much causing, uh, you know, psychosis or schizophrenia, and just you know, you can just basically. Uh, flip a coin and you might have it on one or not. It, it, it's whether there is a predisposition. so but the thing is you don't necessarily know if you've got a predisposition towards uh, schizophrenia. so it may unmask that condition. So that's why we need proper screening. Um, and then the other thing is people may experience when they're taking it transient anxiety, panic, uh, people can have the you know the colloquial bad trip. Um, and that's why it's really important that people are supported psychologically through that so there are a number of considerations and that's why we're certainly have advocating for people to go out and start taking it more so yeah we do need more research and hopefully developing uh, medical and psychological frameworks so people can access this as as, as valid treatment
1: I think panel B
0: wanted BDF to, ask to ask something yeah jerome I'm wondering if there's a as, as developments are occurring um, there must yeah, be some um, Attention, or must be some consideration of the difference between synthetically produced, um, you know, pharmaceutical products versus the naturally occurring products like psilocybin in mushrooms and so on. So the MDA versus psilocybin, or or um, or even trying to just replicate psilocybin in a chemical fashion. Um, can you talk to that? Is there is there a meaningful distinction?
4: Uh, well, you can synthesize psilocybin, um, so that's something which. I mean, you can't hold a, uh, a patent on it, so there's you know there's not so much money to be made from that. And as we know that's certainly a very strong focus of companies is to make money. So yeah, look there, there, there are a range of analogs uh, being developed, so sort of you know synthetic variations of substances such as psilocybin, and also for example, DMT, uh, which is from ayahuasca. Um, yeah, look, absolutely. I, I think there is, if you look at the medicinal cannabis area, there is a general public desire for natural. And, and, uh, I can only say it from a personal perspective I, as a researcher, as an academic, to me, it sits more comfortably working with nature. You know, it's the master chemist and, uh, really, you know, they may develop novel compounds, but I think there'll always be a desire um, to develop that. And who knows all sorts of different, you know, magic mushroom strains, maybe combinations with various plant medicines. I mean, there's a whole world of creative um, ethnopharmacology which we can develop. So that's hopefully the way forward.
1: Training with?
2: Yeah, sorry, I've got another question about risk, just to go back a bit. Um, yes. You were talking before a bit about. Um, patients who've experienced trauma and how it can kind of be an insightful experience for them are you aware of any instances where this kind of transcendent experience and kind of tapping into a deeper level of consciousness is actually worse for them sort of re-traumatizing or you know makes them feel worse at the end of it
4: yeah that's a beautiful question and Uh, while I didn't discuss that yet just uh, recently uh, going back in the conversation uh, yeah absolutely I mean that's one of the concerns is that if people are taking these particular uh, medicines that they may have experiences they could be fantastic they could be bad they could as you said get re-traumatized and they don't have the supportive framework and the data which we have certainly does clearly say that for a percentage of people Uh, they may find it difficult to reintegrate their experiences back into their life. But also you can have fundamental paradigm shifts in terms of the way people view the universe to be blunt themselves, you know, the people around them, their life. So that's why we really need adequate support. And for example, the other concern is uh, people, uh, you may have heard of it, go off on these psychedelic holidays to Peru or uh, Brazil where they see shamans and they might take uh, ayahuasca Uh, these of ayahuasca retreats and they can have absolutely profound experiences the problem is once again good or bad uh, they come back into the western world uh, you know back into Australia and very hard for some of them to 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 reintegrate so a very crucial consideration the other thing is also this is a very minor issue but it still needs to be brought up um, and that is safety around you know, people heading out into the jungles of Peru with a, you know, a shaman you may not know. And I mean, also there's sort of backyard shamanic stuff going on in Australia. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes and some of it could be absolutely fantastic. But of course, you know, we do want to make sure that there is a supported framework.
1: Jerome, we have got to finish up in a sec, but I just wanted to ask you about the project you're doing, the Global Ayahuasca Project and and, and what the sort of implications of that are.
4: Yeah, thank you very much for for raising. Yeah, this was a an interesting study, as I said before, led by um, uh, Dr. Daniel Perkins, uh, sort of collaboration with Melbourne Uni and, and uh, Western Sydney Uni and, and others, especially over in Brazil. And we we collected data from over ten thousand people who have taken ayahuasca. Um, so a very large study, and and collected a range of data to see you know what their experience was like. Now, from a Academic perspective, it's a captive sample. So usually people write in saying, oh, yeah, I had a great experience or, you know, yeah, I've taken it as well. But um, regardless, I mean, we had very stunning findings in terms of people reporting that their alcohol use, their alcohol, um, alcohol or substance use really dramatically uh, lessened after that. Uh, they had positive effects with processing trauma, uh, you know, large increases uh, of remission uh, of depression and anxiety um so, so, really encouraging results now, of course, we need to do the old double blind r c t uh to 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 assess that um you know more scientifically, but I think just very encouraging uh data there, and certainly far beyond what we 're seeing you know with pharmaceutical agents at the moment so once again you know we just we we need to get some funding in so we can do some good research
1: Jerome uh, thanks so much for coming in on a Sunday morning or via Zoom and telling us about this it's such an exciting emerging area you know following on the tales of cannabis and and of course it's been going on for decades but it's really just been catching on in my sense in the last five years and I'm so excited to hear that you know the marriage of the sort of scientific approach with the you know you know meeting the needs of the community that are so enthusiastic about these emerging treatments so you have been listening to Professor Jerome Sarris, who is a professor at uh, both Western Sydney Uni and Melbourne Uni. Um, Jerome, thanks very much. People can read more about all this online and I know there's been some papers coming out. So uh, yeah, good on you.
4: Thank you so much, Stephen. Thanks, panel. It's great to be with you. Have a great day.
3: Cheers, mate. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website rrr.org.au.
1: On the panel this morning, you've got myself, Doolittle, Panel Beater, Spock, and the inappropriately named Trainer Wheels, because she no longer has her Trainer Wheels on. She's them off a month ago, and began her career as a doctor. And I always think that, you know, that intern is such a, the intern role is such a, it's, it's almost a meme in society, in society. you know, we all, it's every TV show. So I really am keen to hear, Jess, how it's gone and, uh, you know, what your observations are. Take, us, take us to the streets of the hospital.
2: It's good. It's good. So I've started on a psychiatry rotation, which is probably a little bit out of the ordinary for... You know, most interns would start on Gen Med or ED or something. So um, I'm not having the sort of traditional intern experience. And I must say, I'm not doing too much overtime and I don't have too much responsibility. I don't have to make too many decisions. So it's been a pretty easy start to my career, really, in many ways. Um, but I'd, something I did find funny in the first week was just the sort of small things that started to strike me as, oh, it is different now. And the first thing was when I'm writing the note while we're, you know, reviewing a patient, at the end, as a medical student, you always have to get a doctor to co-sign the note for you. And I got to the end of the note and I signed it and I thought, oh, it's just me now. I don't know. Uh, Sign it. (laughs) It just felt a bit like, oh, a bit thrilling. You know, that
1: sort of reminds me, you know, I always thought, you know, it's the same when you get your license, you know, you spend all this time and then suddenly you're in the car by yourself on the day after and you think, oh my God, you know, I'm responsible for this big machine that can do harm, and uh, um, just for context for people, that that's a part of the Royal Commission. So one of their early things that came in was that they've released an HMO funding for hospitals, 42 positions this year for um, interns and first year doctors to do psychiatry. It's going to be apparently compulsory by 2023. That's why it's probably a bit new, and you know everyone's these are the first rotations. Um, and, uh, but, uh, that is pretty exciting. What about the tiredness though, Jess? Because I also remember when I first started the first three months, I was just exhausted all of a sudden, you know, at least when you're a student, you can flex a little bit. Once you're working, it's like, nah, turn up at eight, preferably an hour early to be ready for all the questions you're going to get asked and stay till the end, often doing overtime. Although you mentioned yours is a bit quiet. Are you tired or are you feeling okay?
2: Uh, My hours are not too bad. So I'm 8.30 till 5, so I can't really complain too much. But the thing that makes me really buggered is I've got a toddler at home too, so I don't get to just go home and veg out and watch Netflix for a couple of hours. (laughs) I get home and I've got another job there. And then the weekends are, you know, pretty packed as well. So that's probably the most exhausting thing that I don't get any downtime. Um, but I sort of try to chill out a bit on the train on the way in. And that's sort of my quiet time to read a book or whatever. Um, and I, I, it is getting better. So the first couple of weeks I was absolutely stuffed on the weekend. Like I just was a total zombie, but I'm feeling a bit better now. So I think it's sort of like building up fitness to anything else.
3: And what's, what's been the best thing or the most fun thing so far? Um,
2: I think just talking to people. I really, I love talking to people. It's so much fun. And I think, You know, in the medical profession, we've been so lucky throughout COVID that we've been able to keep seeing people in real life for for the most part. Um, And, you know, psych patients are so interesting Um, and, you know, it's just such a joy to talk to them. And it's also really satisfying in psych, I think, potentially more so than other specialties. Patients can come in really sick and then two weeks later they're kind of 100%. Like you see really dramatic improvements with people and that's hugely rewarding and satisfying.
1: Yeah, you know, I think people miss that basic concept. And I'm always telling junior doctors that, you know, don't dismiss... A lot of people have a negative view of psychiatry. They think it's, you know, low-paid, low-prestige, pre- et etc. et cetera. But the thing that they forget is the average, you're looking after relatively young people and they get better relatively quickly. Whereas general medicine, they're often very old, often three or four comorbidities, meaning three or four illnesses. You know, it's often... Oft, I hate to say this sounds cynical, but sometimes it's shifting deck chairs on the Titanic because they've got so many different things going on, whereas, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm, I, I can see I'm talking into an they, ad. I'm talking into an up, ad.
2: They end up with pneumonia that they get from hospital. Yes. You sort of can't tell if you've even made them any better from being an inpatient or not, although Spock's experience would be different because kids are similar. Kids, for the most part, yeah. Well,
3: pediatrics for sure is an area where, you know, you get kids uh, they come in desperately unwell and often forty-eight hours later go home very well. So, and what's been has been anything unexpected so far? Training wheels or I had, doctor training wheels?
2: I had two simultaneous met calls on my ward the other day, which I didn't think was going to happen on the psychiatric unit. So that was a bit dramatic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did you have a question, panel beta Or what? yeah, thanks, yeah. Uh, oh, thanks,
0: too well, Yeah, Yeah. Um, Charlie it's so great uh, to be hearing this story and it's uh, really proud of you transitioning into this uh, new life of yours. Hey, can you explain to somebody like me who's very interested in the education aspect of this, what does supervision actually look like for you on a day-to-day basis? Is it somebody who's um, uh, connected at the hip with you, looking over your shoulder every minute of the day? Where's the autonomy? Where's the boundaries? Um, and and, pre- and pre- perhaps how that um, affects your engagement with the with the patients if you've got somebody looking over you, you know, how do they respond to that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, Panel Beater. So honestly, for the most part, I don't talk to the patients myself very much. Um, mostly the registrar and consultant will be doing the detailed reviews with them. But if the patients have any medical problems that need addressing, that's my responsibility to take care of. So that's when I do get to see the patients on my own and sort of get to know them and chat to them and sort of feel like a real doctor. Um, and then in terms of medications and stuff, on psychiatry, really, I do what I'm told. I don't make any decisions or really have very much autonomy at all. A lot of suicide. <laughs> No psilocybin so far, no. Not um, even for you. Well, uh, yeah, so that's kind of a relief though, to be honest. I think it takes a lot of pressure off and I feel very safe prescribing knowing that it's not my decision. Um, but And then we, in terms of how kind of supervised we are, it varies according to which clinician um, I'm attached to. I work with three registrars and two consultants and they all kind of have varying degrees of hand-holding, I suppose, and, and you know, them knowing that it's our first rotation, definitely at the beginning they were very cautious with us and as we're sort of getting more comfortable, they're giving us a little bit more freedom to get things done without active supervision. Um, but it's sort of up to the comfort level of the registrars in large part.
3: And wheels, uh, is there a bit of a, a sort of a social um, uh, side to your, your intern group and the cohort? Are there people that you know from... From
1: student days and like actually, on all the TV shows where the interns are all having parties and are drunk every <laughs> night and are in romantic relationships with each other.
2: I actually don't know the answer to that question because the psych unit is kind of separate to the main hospital, so I don't get the chance to go down to the common room very much and mix with the other interns. I've got one co intern, and we get along well and we share an office and we, you know, debrief and have lots of chats, and that's really nice that we have each other to bounce ideas off and ask each other questions because sometimes we both feel like we're just kind of making it up as we go along. (laughs) Um, But I think on my next rotations when I'm down on the main campus, I feel like there will be that nice kind of social spirit of us helping each other out and all kind of in the trenches together.
1: (laughs) You know, when I started, I've I've said this many times over the years, that I felt I learnt more in my first month as an intern than I did in my I won't tell you how many years it took me to get through medical school. It was more than the prescribed amount. Let's leave it at that. Um,
2: Me too.
1: And and, I mean, I guess if you're doing psych, it's, you know, as as we said, it's a new rotation, so it's a little bit different. But do you feel with the different level of responsibility that it is getting ingrained and, you know, into your brain better than it did as a student when it was all academic?
2: Definitely, definitely. It's so much easier to remember stuff when there's a real person in front of you that it's applicable to rather than in a lecture setting or something. Um, even, you know, just getting a sense of all the different psych medications are very confusing and they've all got very long, complicated names and lots of different dosages and all that sort of stuff. And it's very hard to learn as a student, just sitting down and sort of trying to memorise classes of medications and stuff. But when you see real patients on them, it all sort of starts to fit together a bit more and those sorts of things. Yes, definitely.
1: And I also wonder, you know, I know you've um got a gorgeous little two and a half year old, I think. Um, And I know you're also passionate about um, supporting women in medicine. And so I'm wondering, are there part-time roles for interns? Can you get a part-time job? What's the story?
2: This is my little bee in my bonnet this year, Dr. Doolittle. Thank you for asking. Um, Yes and no. So hospitals in general say they're happy to support job-sharing interns. But the issue with that is you have to find a job-share partner who's available and suitable and that you click with and all those sorts of things. Mm. And I didn't find a job share partner, so no. (laughs) I'm working full-time and that's not what I wanted. Um, The rotations I've got are relatively family-friendly in the scheme of things. Um, But I think it's a shame that the hospitals put the onus on the employees to make their... um, I guess to make their work hours flexible and suitable for their lifestyle, rather than the other way around. It's really it's, not. It, it shouldn't be that. hard.
1: No, and it wouldn't be that hard for them to have a register. You know, each hospital to have a register. Um, you know, if you're interested in part, two, you know, they should. There's dozens of interested. They could easily match it up for you, and you could have, you know, different years matching up. You don't have to be doing you know, everything the same. It's it, it's really and not quite good enough. say that it's
2: complicated to roster a part-time position, but there are heaps of complicated rosters. All the rosters are complicated, and I think it just a little bit more more effort on their part, it, it is possible. Oh, as
1: an administrator, I, think- I can tell you it's definitely harder, but the point is it's worthwhile. It brings more and people and a greater variability.
3: It is worth mentioning that I think there is, um, although you know, your experience this year has, has been like that, trainer wheels, that there, there actually is an increasing um, recognition that, that job sharing is important, that people want to work part-time for a whole variety of reasons because they've got kids, because they want to study, because they want to maintain their guitar or they're Italian or whatever it might be and um, certainly I think psychiatry and paediatrics are two areas where as you go through the training program it's actually quite doable so shout out to those who want to do paediatrics and psychiatry.
0: To that um, uh, aspect of uh, you know job sharing or trying to be part-time how does the internship work or how is it measured? Is it like being a pilot? You've got to get the flight hours. So do you need to, by the end of the year, have been on uh, on ward for a certain number of hours and the internship doesn't finish until then? Is Essentially, right? yes. Yeah, everyone everyone right.
2: has to do a gen med term, a general surgery term and an emergency department term and then two other terms, which can be elective or you might repeat, you know, you might do gen med twice or whatever. Right. Um, but you have to do a full year of full-time work, or equivalent, um, to get your general registration. And, and, we, and
3: interestingly, we're moving towards two-year internships in interstate. My, my son works interstate and he's done a two-year internship and that's going to probably come in in Victoria as well.
1: And we're also, um, as as I mentioned earlier, um, it, the Royal Commission report will almost certainly recommend as well as medicine, surgery and emergency department being compulsory parts of the internship, they'll add in that you have to compulsorily have done um, a mental health rotation, but probably by the end of third year. I don't think they'll make it straight up in intern year, obviously, but uh, so there, there will be more. What about, I know you touched on this before. Do you feel, you know, the other thing that we all say that people laugh about interns is, you know, the safety element. And, you know, it sounds like, you know, what What are your mates saying? You know, do you, do you, do you feel it's safe? Do you feel that the systems are... Uh, uh, you know I know it's going to be hard answering me because there's not much choice. And, but <laughs> w- w- what do you think? You are happy?
2: I am, yeah. I think my hospital does a good job of supporting us. Um, everyone's very kind and helpful and cognizant of the fact that we're very early on and we need help. Um, so I, I have no hesitation calling people and asking for help when I need to. Um, and whenever we're uncomfortable with anything, we always just defer to a senior to make a decision. And I think it's okay. I think it's safe. <laughs> That's
1: so nice, trainer. I was so glad to hear it. And you know, this has got massive deja vu for me because I trained at your hospital as an intern and I didn't, That you couldn't do psych in first year back then, but I lobbied very hard to get the first psych rotation in second year and worked in the same unit you're working in as my first second year job. I managed to, fandangle another rotation in that year in the same job so that I could apply to get into the psych training program. So I'm just full of nostalgia. Hey, uh, thanks tagged so much. Can you
2: your name anywhere, Doolittle? Say that again? I'm wondering if I can find your name tagged anywhere on the unit. Doolittle? I carved
1: into the desks. In the men's toilets. <laughs> yeah, carved into the desks. Hey, a good time uh, call. <laughs> and it's never been true, unfortunately. I wish it was. Hey, um... You've been listening to Radiotherapy, everyone. You've got myself, Doolittle. You've got Panel Panelbeater, Spock, and Training Wheels, who's just been telling us about her experience as, uh, as a freshly minted intern. Of course, we also had Professor Jerome Sarris. Thank, thanks so much for uh, phoning in, Jerome, telling us all about um, uh, uh, psychedelics and their emerging role in mental health. Hi.
0: This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.